Welcome to Renovate, the young adult ministry of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We are for all young adults. Whether you're far from God or walking close to Him, we believe that our God fully knows us and fully loves us. So instead of leaving us as He finds us, He is constantly and graciously renovating our lives so we can look more like Him. Enjoy this week's message. Amen. Amen. Praise God. How are you guys doing tonight? Good, good. I love that you're here. I love um, getting to sit here and worship in this room with you, or if you're watching online or listening to uh, just the sweetness of a room full of people, uh, worshiping about the goodness of God, and just like Maggie prayed, um, sometimes those words are so easy to sing for me, and other times they're not. And so what we're talking about uh, this evening Uh, at Renovate is we're talking about a pretty heavy subject, and it's going to be a pretty heavy night. Um, We're going to ask a really difficult question, and this whole semester, our goal is on these Renovates, the first Wednesday of the month here in this room, Renovate Live, uh, that we would tackle hard questions, that we would tackle questions that we um, maybe have wrestled with, that I certainly have wrestled with, uh, and and really tackle them head on. But those are going to be heavy, uh, weighty conversations. Um, Tonight, we look at suffering. And we look at a good God, and yet we also look at a world full of brokenness and suffering. And those things seem to be at opposition. Um, Even just stats, right? I could overwhelm you with a bunch of depressing stats at the beginning of the sermon. Um, There's there's 9 million people a year who die from hunger in the world that God is um, supposedly sovereign over. 9 million people die from hunger or hunger-related diseases. Uh, 40% of men and women will experience some sort of cancer in their life. Uh, There are estimated 153 million orphans in our world. And even just uh, apart from stats, here's a a story. Uh, In December of 2016, uh, 29 people lost their life in a church in Nigeria when the roof collapsed while they were inside worshiping. What is God doing? What is God doing that our world has this amount of suffering, and not just stats to throw out. I'm speaking to a room of people who I would imagine have experienced suffering, have experienced, have seen it, have witnessed it, or are sitting in it and walking in it. And so I think we should ask the question. We should be a ministry, a church, a body of believers that's not afraid to ask hard questions and say, God, what are you doing? If you're all powerful and all all in control, then why would you allow these things uh, to happen? And that's who we want to be. We want to be a ministry that says, let's go to scripture. Let's go to God. Let's bring this God who we trust our doubts and our concerns uh, and our questions. How can it be? Right, if God is truly powerful, um, if he is controlling all things, surely we can't say he's always good. They seem intellectually inconsistent. Um, Either he's not all powerful or he's just not all good. He, He could be all powerful, but maybe he's got a cruel streak or maybe he is just so good and kind and loving, but in his sovereignty, he's just given up control and there's just things that are now out of his power. Um, It's a question I've wrestled with and I've wrestled with it um, kind of in a detached intellectual way and really just 
chosen to study it and, and struggle with that question just as someone who grew up in the church and honestly didn't know that was a safe question that I was allowed to ask. And so I've wrestled with it in that way, but I've also wrestled with it um, as someone who has suffered from very personal places, um, from losing my wife and I losing two babies uh, to miscarriages, to me being a new husband, been married for less than a year and a half, sitting in an ICU room with my wife for a week after a horrible car wreck and and unable to heal or help my wife or fix her when she's hurting uh, as a pastor presiding over numerous funerals and memorial services with caskets this big, babies and teenagers and standing with parents, preaching to them, standing next to them, singing at a funeral as they go to bury their teenage son. We have to ask this question. We have to honestly look at it. If we say we're following this God and we trust him and he is good, surely we can dig into hard, hard, hard questions. Suffering produces hard questions. It really does. It produces hard questions. I believe there are good answers. I really do. And more so, I believe, just even personally, as I in my life have really gotten to study this question and not run from it, but look at it. And not just look at it detached from God, but in my walk with God, bring it to him and say, God, I'm mad, I'm frustrated, I'm hurt, I'm confused, I'm lost. Bringing it to him, uh, I have been met with a good, good God who is also all-powerful in that wrestle. Um, That's my hope. That's my hope for tonight. Um, I won't be able to answer all of those questions for all of us. That's not what's going to happen in the sermon. I don't have a a perfect sermon that's now going to solve that once and for all for you, where that will never be a a muscle that you have to build yourself in your faith and in your walk with with God. It's a a conversation and a topic of, of debate that there is, I literally have shelves in my bookshelf, multiple shelves of just books, chapter after chapter, written about this idea of the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, Um, So my goal is not to sum up all of those books in one night, um, but my goal is that we would be able, I'd be able, the Holy Spirit would be able to give us some steps and some handles to handle this doubt, to walk out this doubt and to walk out good questions. And more importantly, that he would meet us in our doubts and that we would learn how to meet with him in our doubts and in our hurting. Now, before we really jump into some of the passages that we're going to unpack, I've got two presuppositions that are just going to be important for us to understand going into this conversation, okay? Um, And so the first presupposition is really the idea that the Bible is true and authoritative. And so in order to have this conversation, we've got to have a starting ground, otherwise you guys aren't going home tonight. It's going to be an all-nighter. And so we're going to start with the premise of the Bible is true and authoritative. And there's shelves and shelves of books that would even discuss this idea. I believe it. We believe it. Um, I believe Scripture gives us, through 66 books in God's Word in the Bible, a consistent picture of who this God is. And a deep, not a shallow, hollow, easy, pithy God, but a deep look at who God is, how he interacts with suffering, and how he holds these two things, his sovereignty and suffering um, in his hand and holds those tension. And so um, that's a presupposition that we, we believe here, that the Bible is authoritative, that we're going to lean on it. Uh, we'll wrestle through this conversation with logic and we'll wrestle through it with thoughtfulness, but we're also going to lean on scripture as we kind of walk through uh, this hard question um, and, and seek deep answers. 
Second presupposition is this. Um, In order for this talk, this conversation to make sense, um, I'm presupposing also that God is in control. And again, that could be a whole another sermon series, but um, if we look at this tension, can God really be in control with so much pain and suffering? We're going to have to start somewhere, all right? We're going to have to start somewhere, and, and so I'm letting you know that we can't seem to ignore God's sovereignty if we believe this is authoritative and true. We can't really seem to get around the idea that God is in control. And so we're going to start with the place of it seems that he is in control. Now, what we do with suffering, we'll spend the rest of our time on. But um, all throughout Scripture, uh, I'm just going to give you a few of them. Psalm 115.3. Psalm 115.3, the psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. This is Jesus. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Meaning, sparrows are, you could buy two of them for a penny. I'm not sure where you buy sparrows, but back then, I guess, you could buy two of them for a penny. So they're a seemingly insignificant thing, right? It's, it's a, just a sparrow. Who cares? You can get two of them for a penny. And yet a sparrow won't die in a field somewhere without the God of the universe being aware of it and ordaining it. That's what he's saying. That God even cares and oversees the minutia of a sparrow somewhere. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him, God, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. God is in control. That crazy nation in, in biblical history that was doing horrible things, this is written and saying, hey, even God is in control of those things. That God even orchestrates that kind of stuff. Isaiah 45, 7, I form, this is God speaking, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I could go on and on and on. Acts 4 talks about that it was actually God who appointed uh, those who accused and crucified Jesus. The entire chapter, Romans 9, talks about this idea of God's sovereignty and control and and he is the potter and we're the clay. Um, If you want to make the argument that the God of the Bible is maybe um, just not really fully in control, right? And that's why these bad things happen because he's just given up some of his power and some of his control. Um, I actually understand that argument. Part of me would feel much more comfortable. If I had to choose and I was debating somebody, I I think I would honestly, just selfishly, I think it'd be more comfortable for me to take the stance of, well, God is kind and nice, but maybe he's just allowed his control to go away. Um, The only problem is I, I can't find that God in the Bible. And so if the presupposition that this is what is true and this is what authoritative is where we're starting, um, then I think we have to start with the idea that the God of the Bible is in control. Now listen to me say this. This is important. Our God also biblically does not do evil. He is not the author of suffering. He is not the author of evil. And that's a really important statement and sentiment that our God is not the one who is poking, but our God is still fully in control. He is not the author of evil and suffering, but he is also not a weak God who has his hands tied saying, gosh, 
I wish I could help you, but my hands are tied. That's not the picture of God we get in Scripture. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because I believe he is not only just in control, but also he is good. So loving and so compassionate. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God, which is the same, which is consistent uh, throughout Scripture. How? How can I look through an ocean of suffering in my life, in the world around me? How can you look through an ocean of suffering in the world that you live in and get to that conclusion? Let me walk with you just a couple of steps just a couple of steps into that tension. Um, and here's the first step. The first step, I think, in, in really being able to wrap our hearts and minds and, and how we approach God with this is we have to reframe shepherd. Um, we have to reframe suffering in an appropriate ways. We have to reframe suffering appropriately. Um, he, here's why I say I'm just going to walk you a, a couple of steps into this uh, path. Because this topic is not only a huge uh, conversation theologically, right? It's also immensely personal and nuanced. <clears throat> uh, here's what I mean by that. I would, I would consider myself a theologian of types, right? In the sense of I've taken a lot of theology classes and I've got degrees where I studied the Bible and God and world religions. And so I, the study of God is something I enjoy. So I would call myself some version of a theologian. However, primarily in this room tonight, in my life, um, primarily I'm a shepherd. And what's happening tonight is not just me being a theologian giving a lecture, but my hope is, Lord, would you use me to shepherd what you want to do in this room? Um, it's an impossible task to shepherd over 300 people through a conversation from a sermon that is going to be as nuanced as there are people in this room. This isn't a one-on-one -on -one coffee appointment that I, I get with you. Um, this is really, really broad. And there are people in this room who have experienced and are sitting and suffering because of horrible things that have been done to them. And there are people in this room who are also suffering with very valid suffering uh, because of just circumstances that change that they didn't see coming. And there's other people who are experiencing suffering in this room because of choices that they made. And there's other people who are experiencing suffering in this room because of illness that you didn't plan on. And so for as many people who are in this room, we all are going to see suffering really differently. You name it, it's here. I, I believe that. So I need to be really sensitive. We need to be really sensitive uh, tonight. And you need to hear me. I think it would be wrong to just give an overgeneralized blanket. Let's give you some Bible statements of why suffering is going to be okay. Um, at the end of this sermon, I'm not planning to give you this easy, uh, pithy answer to your deepest hurts, right? I'm hoping to give you some clarity and some, some next steps. So that starts with reframing suffering into these three categories that we see are biblical categories that God defined suffering to exist in. There are these three categories, and we see suffering. It doesn't all look the same. It doesn't manifest itself. And more importantly, each of these categories has a very different why. And if we're here asking the question, why? How, how would this work, and why would God allow that? There's a different answer for each uh, category of suffering, I'd, I'd say. Um, however, there is a, uh, there's a, a zero category, we'll call it, uh, that I don't really have time to discuss, but I also don't think I can afford not mentioning it. Um, and, that's, and that's this. The categories we're going to talk about of biblical suffering, um, they all have these different forms and different whys. Um, 
but there's a particular type of suffering. Um, if, if, if you find yourself in a category of suffering where you, where you say, well, man, life is just really difficult. Um, if someone's experiencing uneasiness or stress or challenges and life is not comfortable, uh, you're going to see the Bible doesn't address that as a category of suffering, and I think the Bible doesn't address it because that's not suffering. Um, and I don't mean to say that uh, tritely. Um, what I'm saying here, let me be really clear, is that um, our goal is not comfort. Uh, so, so our goal is not just that I would be comfortable. When we talk about God's goodness, God's goodness is not just, oh, everything is good in my life right now. So if things are difficult or stressful or challenging in your life right now, that doesn't mean, oh man, there's no goodness to God or I'm having a hard time finding goodness. That is a part of life. And I think we would all hear that and say, okay, we would all nod in agreement. Yes, normal challenges of life don't equal suffering. We get that. The Bible's not going to address them because that's not really suffering. We would all nod our head to that, right? Um, But I don't think we realize how drowned we are in a world and a culture that is overwhelming us with the opposite response. Everything in our world is driving us to a place to say, how can you be the most comfortable possible? Anything that would make you uncomfortable is now a horrible bad thing, right? That's the world that you are, that we are being saturated in. And so although we could easily say, yeah, okay, hard things, Lack of comfort doesn't mean suffering, but it is so sneaky that it really does in our hearts in so many ways. I mean, the American dream even, right? The American dream, which is an awesome dream, big fan, go America. The American dream, people leave their homes and take all kinds of risks to immigrate so that they might raise their kids in a place where maybe their kids could experience the American dream, which is a great dream. They have all the freedoms that they would be entitled to. They'd be free to do whatever they want and to educate and to work hard and to make money and to be safe and protected and comfortable. And one day, maybe my kids in the American dream could have a comfortable house and live a life and experience retirement. That's the American dream, which again, I'm not knocking the American dream. It is a great goal for a country, but it is not the call of the Christian life. To follow Christ is to say, you are my king and my world revolves around you and I serve and submit to you. And even inherent within following Christ is the idea, it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. Um, We have a king to serve. We have a kingdom to be a part of. So I need us to frame those of, okay, we've got to put hard things. Goodness of God doesn't just mean comfort. But suffering is absolutely real, and there is not a person in this room or listening who it hasn't touched their life. So what are these three categories? Let's get to them. The first category is a category that we see of suffering biblically, and that's consequences of sin. We see this um, throughout Scripture. I'll give you some examples. But there are are times where I look at legitimate suffering in my life, um, and I have to realize, although I don't want to admit it, I brought this suffering on myself as a consequence of my actions. And and maybe it was very overt sin, or maybe it wasn't, right? If I wake up four years from now, and I've got just a lot of back pain, and I just have chronic back pain, that could be this distant category of suffering 
um, where, or genetics or something I didn't ask for. Why God? Or it could be I look at my life and say, have I been taking care of myself? Have I been eating and exercising and those things? And so it's really important that we have a category one. We see it biblically. We see that there are consequences of our action, of our sin, things that are, are passive and things that are aggressive. Galatians 6, verse 7, 8, and 9, Paul says this. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Man, if I sow in the flesh, which is my, my own sin and my own selfishness and my own just worldly fleshly desires, I'm going to reap corruption. It's not going to be good. I'm going to reap consequences that are going to make me suffer in ways because I'm reaping what I sowed, what I planted and grew there. If I sow the spirit and the spiritual life of following Jesus, then I will reap this life and life abundant that Christ talks about. This shows up in these obvious telling ways and it shows up in subtle ways and it's hard. I think this category is really hard for us to identify and self-diagnose in our life. I really do. I think this is a category that's easy to say, okay, cool. If, you know, obviously, if I, if, I, if I get a DUI, then yes, obviously. But, but outside of that, I, I, it's not my fault. And I think we're prone to keep category one at a distance. Maybe we're quick to apply it to someone else, but certainly not to ourselves. I think it takes the Spirit of God to admit this at times. Right? We don't want to. It's easier. It's honestly easier just to just honestly, 100%, just be the victim of someone else's cruelty or, or of, a, of a God that we don't understand. Um, and it happens all the time, right? You might have a supervisor who treats you poorly um, or, or you lose your job and you think, man, well, this whole organization was corrupt and they were awful, which, which might be even 90% true. But so often too, we think, oh man, was there, was there 10% of it of how I responded in this? relationships. Maybe we get in these patterns of just bad relationships. And, it, and it's kind of a cyclical pattern of the same type of, honestly, just suffering that happens at the end of a just broken, hurt, damaged relationship. We think, God, why are, why are all guys jerks? God, why are all girls jerks? And we think, man, is, is there something in there that I can actually take responsibility for? And it's so much easier to say, yeah, Boys are smelly and girls are mean or my boss is bad. Category one is really hard for us to admit in our life. I think it takes a ton of maturity and I think it takes, um, I think, I think it takes Jesus for me to see that and say, okay, Lord, this is some stuff I've sowed. Um, David was really good at this, man. David in the Old Testament, king, man after God's own heart, uh, he, he made some horrible mistakes, right? He did some amazing things, but also made some horrible mistakes. He, there was a woman that he was attracted to, s- slept with her, got her pregnant, had her husband killed, tried to cover it all up. All of his sin comes into the light. It's awful. There's immense suffering. There's loss. There, uh, there's just horrible stuff happens in his life. And he's so quick to own it and admit it um, after it's exposed, obviously. In Psalm 51, he says, this is his prayer. This is when he gets busted in his sin. This is his go-to. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. 
blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Category one is a category of suffering that we see in our world that we, we have to look in the mirror and say, okay, is, is this a part of, of the suffering in my life? Category two is this. Category two is trials. One of the more popular verses on suffering is in James chapter one. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what this suggests. Here's what even having a whole nother category of suffering called trials does for us. It suggests that there is a a category out there that is not because you did anything wrong. You didn't make a mistake, you weren't in sin, you weren't foolish. There's a category of suffering biblically that God acknowledges, Old Testament, New Testament, he acknowledges that simply God allowing trials in your life, suffering in your life for his purpose. That purpose, James 1 says, this idea of testing your faith and not testing in the sense of let me see if he passes or fails, let me see if she fails her her faith in this, but attesting in the sense of stretching it, right? Exposing, let's see, let's, let's stretch your faith. Um, also, the purpose it talks about in James 1 here is this idea of it producing more faith. It stretches your faith, it produces more faith, and actually it is sanctifying you, which is this idea of God refining and perfecting what James 1 talks about, that you might be completed, that God is using trials in our life not because you did anything wrong, not category one, not because you were foolish or did something silly, but because God seems to be using it to chisel. He has a work that he's doing in you. Um, I think a great example of this is the story of Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament, 12 brothers. They betray him, right? He's a 17-year-old. He is a 17-year-old and all of his brothers who are jealous and hate Joseph. They, they, they beat him, they throw him in a well. Later they decide, let's just sell him into slavery. Let's tell dad he got killed by wild animals. And so that's what they do. They sell their brother, their brother into slavery and just assume, okay, he's just dead to us, right? And it was actually one of the brothers like, let's just not kill him. Let's at least throw him into slavery. Most of them just wanted to kill him. So he, he gets sent into slavery. He actually does a great job. He didn't do anything wrong. He, he actually does a great job, works his way up as a slave in this household. Then all of a sudden, crazy accusations, which aren't true, are thrown against him. He didn't do anything wrong. He, had his, he, was, he was doing the right thing. And yet all of a sudden, he's accused of this crazy stuff. Not only gets kicked out of that role, but thrown into prison, right? And he sits in prison for multiple years, right? He's got a couple of friends. One of his friends he watches get executed. That's his life. Let me, let me fast forward to the end of his life. Look at this. The end of Joseph's life, he is one of the um, most accomplished, successful people in all of Egypt. Right? Joseph becomes the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Because of some of the decisions he makes, he has favor throughout the entire country. 
right? He is literally the second in command of, at the time, what is the largest, most powerful empire in the entire world. Incredible favor. He actually has the ability, is given the ability and takes it to actually save everyone he cares about, including the brothers who betray him. He ends up saving later. That's Joseph's life in the end, right? He becomes this incredibly, and God used his story all throughout. Right, God used this period of just refining and chiseling and, and making Joseph stretch this faith and go through this thing because God had this much bigger story to tell and this bigger plan. And so we see these two pictures of we see the end of Joseph's life and the life that he lived and the significance that he was able to live with. And then we see how he got there was, was trials and trials and trials and trials. Look what God did. He's telling this bigger story that he can see, but so often we can't. One of the things that we say in our household every once in a while, the, the Fuquay home, um, and I don't know where I got this. I don't think it's original. Um, but when we hit trials, when there's hard stuff that we do, we try to hold on to this phrase. We don't always believe it, but we say it and we keep saying it until maybe we believe it. And it's this idea that, man, praise God that he trusts us enough to go through something like this. And so there's times in the Fuquay family when we're running into really hard stuff or we're wrestling with things, whether that's miscarriages or health or uh, my, my dad had cancer several years ago or whatever it is that, that we rally together and we try, although our hearts might not be there, we say, God, thank you for trusting us to go through something like this and what that means and God, the refinement that you might do out of this, the work that we can't see, but we're gonna trust you might do out of this. That is really, really hard. First Peter says it a different way in chapter one. He says this, he says, in this you rejoice, talking about, honestly, persecution in first Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a category of our suffering that is just trials. And then there's this third category. And this third category is clearly in Scripture. And that third category is mystery. <clears throat> um, there is a category in Scripture that God has ordained and allowed to be in his word, consistent throughout old and new, where it would seem that there is this category of suffering, not because of choices you made and not even because God is going to tell a bigger story in it or not even because he wants to refine you. It's not because of a choice you made. It's not because he's trying to refine you, but there is this suffering that God allows to stay as a mystery. The most clear example of this is in the story of Job. Right, the story of Job in the book of Job, it documents this guy who, who is just, a, I mean, he is a godly man. He's a godly man, he's successful, and God, again, allows. He is not the author of suffering, but he allows Satan to take Job through God's sovereignty, allows Satan to walk Job through awful, awful stuff. Job loses his kids, his kids die, his boys die. He loses his house. He loses his business. He eventually loses his health. And he's eventually sitting around a campfire covered in boils, lost his family, lost his, his well-being, lost everything, sitting around trying to process, ask this question, why? 
What did I do wrong? What are you trying to teach me? He's getting horrible advice from his friends who are just saying, man, you must have done something wrong. It must be this category one. Or man, God must just be trying to teach you a good old lesson. And all of these things are coming back blank. And Job is this man who says, what is happening? And he's asking the Lord and he takes that doubt and that frustration, he takes it to God. And then God answers Job in, verses, in chapter 38 through 41. I'm not gonna read it all for you. But you should study that. God answers Job as Job says, what are you doing? Four chapters. I think our powerful God patiently and kindly shows Job perspective. Let me just read you the first few verses. Um, We'll put them up on the screen. Verse 4 through 11 in chapter 38. This is God responding. And he he goes on and on like this. But he, he starts this way. He says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning star sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and I set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further here is where your proud waves halt. The God of the universe is saying, hey, where were you? When I said, this is where the ocean stops and this is how the clouds work and this is, where were you at creation? He goes on and on for four chapters and what he's saying is he's saying, hey, I have a perspective that you don't. Job, you're living your life here. And I am your God. But I have a much bigger and broader perspective that you aren't going to be able to see. And he doesn't give a pithy, easy answer for the suffering. He allows it to be a mystery. And he allows Job to be able to respond, sitting in that mystery in faith and still worshiping. And ultimately being restored to that God and being restored to health and being restored in all those ways. That's not an easy answer, right? Leaving it a mystery isn't an easy answer. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, uh, it discusses this a lot, right? There's this whole group of really faithful, really good people. They didn't see God's promises come to fruition. They didn't see, they didn't get refined through some sort of suffering. They got sawn in half. That's what Hebrews 11 says. They got cut literally in half in persecution. They didn't see these great God promises and wow, look how much character this developed in me. They got murdered for their faith, for following God. And yet we have this mystery and this tension that God allows that third category to remain. This this sliver of why God says, do you trust me? And we don't know. And I think that is an incredibly... um, I think it's an incredibly intellectually consistent place to be, and it's actually a mature category that I think you need to have as you wrestle with suffering. I think the church needs to have that category. I think so often the church is quick to say, oh, you're hurting? It must be because you did something wrong, or this is God punishing you something, or, oh, what's God going to try to teach you this lesson? Um, I think it's important that we're not quick to give pithy, easy answers to really hard, deep questions of people suffering. We still ask. We still ask God. Uh, We don't use this as an excuse to just be passive and suffer. 
We go to God with our why and, and oftentimes, oftentimes he moves us from category three to category two. That happens all, all the time, right? Even Joseph's example, right? You look at Joseph, who we clearly see the narrative of Joseph's life is, wow, look what God was doing. But if you were to like hang out with Joseph when he's a 17-year-old, he was 17 when his brothers abandoned him. He was 30 when he got out of prison. You go to Joseph anywhere in those 13 years of his life when he's sitting in prison or being a slave in someone else's house, thinking about his brothers who betrayed him, you go to him anytime and say, wow, why? He would have absolutely said, I have no idea. I have no idea. So often as we wait, you can see God's perspective, God's timing. So often we do move from category three, I don't know, to wow, okay, I see what you did. And yet so often when we get to that category three and it feels unbearable, we just want to eject. We just want to eject and say, never mind, it's not worth following. He's not good. I can't sing this. It takes time. It takes perspective. I promise there are shortcuts theologically to the problem of pain. Um, You could get easy, quick answers, and they're going to produce a horrible God. They're going to produce a shallow, hollow theology. And God isn't giving you quick, easy answers when you ask hard questions. Um, I want to encourage you, though, for sure. I don't know who needs to hear this, but don't abandon your faith because you can't get a quick fix or an easy answer to a hard, hard question. Don't abandon your faith because you're looking at a hard question and you haven't. You have, I mean, Joseph sat on it for 13 years. We've got to appropriately reframe suffering in our life if we want to take some steps to really be able to adequately answer why. We've got to know what question we're asking. We've got to know from which category our prayers are going to say, God, I think it's this. God, would you show me? Where do we go from here? It's that. Reframe suffering in your life thoughtfully, prayerfully, carefully, that's my hope for us, that we would walk out of here and we would start from the place of, all right, let's not use suffering as this big blanket statement. Oh man, why are bad things happening to everyone? Look at it introspectively. And maybe for you, it's not a category one, two, and three. Maybe you really are um, looking at it and approaching this conversation, not really from a personal place tonight, but really more from kind of an intellectual observation, which I would applaud you for that. That's mature and good. And you're not really coming in suffering. You're just wrestling with a really good theological hard question. Good. Do that. That's good, right? But don't let, but don't let being a spectator to other people's suffering, to statistics that you see, to things you see on the news, to other stories, don't let being a spectator also become a scapegoat to say, man, I don't want this faith. And so often we do that too. Well, there's a lot of suffering and I don't have a good answer, so I just don't want this faith. Lean into it, ask hard questions, that's good, but don't use it as a scapegoat for a God you just don't really want to submit to. And this can easily become a scapegoat. Also, use godly counsel. That's something I really want to encourage you. If you're a note taker, write that down. Pray, spend time with the Lord, but also seek godly counsel. What do you see in my life? I feel like I'm suffering in this place and find people who know scripture and are going to be careful with it and careful with you that will love you enough to not just tell you you're always a victim. I don't know. But also, 
Um, just a heads up, if you are that wise counsel in someone's life, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know why the suffering is happening, but I'll sit with you and I'll cry with you and I'll wait with you for the next 13 years and I'll walk with you. Don't be afraid to be that kind of brother or sister or community that says, I'll wait. Once you can reframe and you spend that time praying and say, okay, Lord, I think I've kind of categorized these hard things in my life in this way that I I suffer. Um, As you get that, you get suffering in correct categories, then my encouragement is this. Um, Take it to God, right? Take that to God. Um, Those three categories, we'll, we'll put them back up there. If you're mature enough to identify yourself in one of those, even if it's category one, if you find yourself, okay, there's some some hard things in my life, partly because of maybe decisions I'm making or decisions I've made. Maybe it's blatant sin or maybe it's, it's just sins of omission and I'm just not pursuing him well and I'm not necessarily doing anything actively bad, but there's just some things I'm leaving out of my, my walk with the Lord. Um, category one then, take it to the Lord and then repent and get up, right? Here's what I mean by that. If that's you, if you find yourself on a place where you're like, I am still beating myself up. I'm suffering for that thing that's happened, that thing that's, and you know it's your fault and you, you grieve over that, repent, which means turn from that and then get up and walk back to a good God. Right? You don't have time to sit in shame. You don't have time to sit in shame and continue to feel bad about that thing and that is not the desire of God's heart for you to say, I'm gonna make him sit in that for a little longer. The God of the Bible is also not this karma God that says, oh, wow, they messed up, so I'm going to make sure I put some bad karma on them. That's not who we see in the God of Scripture. Just consequences. And so if that's you and you find yourself in that place, say, Lord, would you teach me to repent? Would you teach me to walk out of these bad patterns? Would you teach me to learn how to confess these things and bring some of these things in the light? Because I know they're they're sowing things that I'm going to reap or I am reaping in my life. Repent and then get up. After Psalm 51, when David was just grieved, forgive me, my sin is ever before me, God forgave him. And he was fasting and he he had sackcloth and ashes all over him. And then he had God's answer and he got up and he went and took a bath. And he said, okay, I'm not gonna sit in my shame. There was consequences and I moved on and I walked back into God's grace. Repent get up. Category two, if you find yourself there, this is hard to pray, but I would really challenge you, ask, how and where should I grow, God? How and where should I grow? If you find yourself in a place where you think, man, this is hard, and what, why is God taking me through this trial? And maybe it's circumstances, maybe it's not just circumstances, maybe it's something in you, maybe it's how he's wired you in a way, maybe it's something you struggle with, Maybe it's something you've done or something that's happening to you. Maybe it's internal, maybe it's external. It doesn't matter. If you find yourself in that place of trial, go to the Lord and say, how and where should I grow? What are you doing, Lord? What can I learn here? And then category three is this. This would be my application if, if that's where you find yourself or when you find yourself there. It would be to trust and to wait. This idea of suffering being a a mystery, um, 
I think the only response we're left with, and certainly what Job did, was he trusted, he still believed, and he waited on God. Look, if this is you, and if you are here and you find yourself in this category where you just are burdened and hurting and suffering and things that have happened to you, and it doesn't make sense, and you didn't ask for it, and you didn't want it, and you didn't do anything wrong, and you find yourself in that place, and you think, I don't see the goodness of God. My encouragement is to hold on and wait. Because here's what I do know. You are not alone in that. Here's what we do know biblically. You are not alone in that. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God, I don't understand. I don't see you yet. I want to trust you. Help me. Help me see you. And then we see here this God who, who, who maybe doesn't give us the answer we want, maybe not in the timing we desire, but remember, we're approaching a God who knows suffering. Right? In your suffering, you're not approaching a detached deity sitting in the heavens who's detached and un, un, unaware of what suffering is like. He did not spare his own son for us. That's the God you approach. You approach a God who I believe is all-powerful and all-loving. And I might not have the answer you want, but I have this good God in Scripture who is so loving that he would endure the most suffering humanly possible. His son on a cross gave his son up for you and me. What I deserved so that I might have him. So if we're overwhelmed by our suffering, right, remember the God who you get to bring your burdens to because he paid for you to do that, because he experienced that suffering, which is how we're able to approach God and worship even when we're hurting, through the gospel. And he took his son to a cross. And our God incarnate hung on a cross and died so that those who suffer might see I don't know what timing that looks like, and I don't know what the answer is going to be. But that's the God who you approach. That's the God who you wait with. That's the God who we trust. And let me end on a really practical note. And this is about as practical as I can, I can make um, this sermon. Because I think this is applicable to all of us. 1 Peter 4, 2 through 14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And listen to verse 13. Listen to the command. Listen to what he says in the midst of this hard stuff. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God has a bigger perspective. And there's this incredible call to us who are, even when we're hurting, can we praise can we still go to him and pray? So real practically, something that I do when I'm hurting, when I'm confused, when I don't know why, when there's pain, when there's suffering around me that I'm trying to walk through and I, I, can't, I don't have an answer for it, and I, I praise and I worship. It's what David did. 
David would go, even when his heart was, was cold, even when intellectually he was hurting and frustrating, he would say, God, make my heart believe this. I need you. God, would I love you? Would I believe the goodness? God, would I praise you with my lips? Praise you, acknowledge you, acknowledge you, and praise you. So I encourage you, put on worship. Surround yourself with truth. Say, God, help my heart believe what is true because I don't feel it right now, but I'm trying to trust you. Um, there was um, a worship leader in this, in this topic of praise, um, a guy named Matt Redman. And you might have heard of Matt Redman. You, if you've been around Christianity in the last decade, you've probably heard one of his songs. He's one of the most influential worship leaders uh, for at least a decade, decade and a half, what he wrote. Um, Matt Redman when he was seven years old, his father committed suicide. And his mother ended up getting remarried to a man who both physically and sexually abused him. That man grew up and not only gave his life to Christ and got healed by the power of the gospel, but he wrote some of the most powerful worship of adoration of who God is the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. Let me just read you a line that, that that man, from his suffering, ended up writing in worship to God, going through what that seven-year-old, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, ten-year-old boy didn't deserve that. Listen to this. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be, and blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. There's this bridge in that song, you give and you take away, you give and you take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And this isn't a quick fix, easy answer to a hard subject, but it's a couple of steps to help you reframe what suffering might be in your life so it doesn't become this broad thing that paralyzes the conversation. And then also, if you are found in this mysterious category of still why, not because you're refining, not because I've done something I need to repent from, but still why that you would take some baby steps, have some handles to say, I will still choose to believe and I will wait and I will see what God is going to do. I want that for you. I want that for me. And I know who I'm talking to. I know I'm talking to a room of people who are, a lot of you are sitting in suffering. I know you are. But he is good. Wait, hold on, don't give up. And when you feel like you can't choose to believe that, just let your lips praise it. Let it be sung over you. Here's how we're going to end um, this sermon. Here in a second, I'm going to pray, and the band's going to come back up, and they're going to lead a song. And I really want to encourage you, don't just shift back into sing mode. I want you to do some business with the Lord tonight and um, I want, you to just, I want you to just let it be sung over you. If you eventually want to stand and sing, great, but it's just a start. Sit, read the lyrics or have them sung over you. Um, but it's lyrics like coming to God with these tainted hands or with these faded hearts. Coming to God with just this mountain of weight on us or this ocean of tears. Man, we approach God and we feel like, man, I'm too dirty to approach him. I've got these tainted hands. I've experiencing this suffering because I've made all these mistakes. Praise him. He's good. His grace is bigger than your sin. Ocean of tears and grief, praise him. 
He is good. And his goodness, I believe, will last longer. Scripture says it will last longer than your darkness. Father, would you do what only you can do tonight in this room? Would you help us, um, Father, meet with you right now, God, that we wouldn't be afraid of hard questions, that we wouldn't be um, quick to find some shallow answers, Lord, that we would wrestle with the tension of your word, of who you truly are. And God, for my brothers and sisters in this room, would you, um, would you meet with us tonight? Would you help us diagnose where we are? What are the different categories that we find ourselves? Where does this suffering come from biblically? And God, respond appropriately. But God, if it's because of consequences in our life that we would continue to preach the gospel over ourselves and experience your grace and not sit in shame and repent and get up and chase after you. And if it's trials that we just know you're refining and teaching us something, God, help us have endurance, help us have godly community around us that will continue to encourage us, show us what you want, mature in us our our worship of you. And for those of us who are just still sitting in the mystery, give us clarity. But more than clarity, give us you that we would choose to praise you even when we're weary, even when we're doubting. Meet us in that place for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope today's message was impactful and God used it to be part of the transforming work he wants to do in your life. Look, our desire is that this isn't just a resource you would listen to, but that this is really a community you would belong to. If you have any further questions, you just want to talk or need prayer, reach out to us. Our contact info is on the website, renovateftw.org, or connect with us on our social media, at RenovateFTW, and we would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.